It was Sunday morning at the local Baptist church, and Miss Mabel was excited to be teaching a lesson on the Ten Commandments to her five- and six-year-old children. And after carefully explaining the commandment, honor thy mother and father, she moved on and she asked the children an important question. Do you know, children, is there a commandment that teaches you how to treat your brothers and sisters? Immediately, without missing a beat, a little boy in the back of the classroom yelled out, Thou shalt not kill. When Carrie asked me to preach on Children's Sunday, I wasn't sure I was the right choice. I was a child once, but that was long ago. I was a children's minister once, believe it or not. But the children I work with are all now grown-ups. I have a child of my own, but she's now in the youth program and taller than many of our members. I feel like a child at heart, but I'm not sure that gives me anything suitable to say in a sermon. I know I'm a beloved child of God, but so is everybody else. I wish I had the faith of a child so I could inherit the kingdom, but far too often my faith is not childlike but childish. And I have yet to heed Paul's advice to put away childish things. However, I may not be a child anymore or have yet achieved a childlike faith. I do know that the church as a whole has never really known what to do with children. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's always been a great deal of sentimentality and concern about children among Christians. Every charity, Christian charity in the world, flashes pictures of mistreated or malnourished children to grab our hearts and encourage us to give. The common catchphrase, it's for the children has been so used and abused so many times, it's become a trite cliche, a sarcastic remark that can be added to the end of anything. I'm doing it for the children, we say, as if that provides justification for any behavior. It's become so ridiculous now that Urban Dictionary has an entire entry on that phrase. It's for the children, they write, is a phrase, a common phrase, used as an excuse for anything when you put it at the end of a sentence. They provide two helpful examples. A wife asks her husband, where are you going? The husband replies, I'm going to have some drinks with the guys, but it's for the children. <laughs> the other example is the government says, we'll be censoring the internet and suppressing your freedom of speech, but it's for the children. It's for the children, we say, as if it makes everything all right. We're going to war, we say. It's for the children. Evangelicals in America today are also very concerned about children. That is, until they're born. They yell and scream and protest and donate obscene amounts of money to right to life campaigns and vote for ungodly politicians, all while claiming it's for the children. But as soon as those children are born, immediately they become someone else's problem. Suddenly all of their passion and concern for children disappears. It's the strangest moral phenomenon I've ever seen. And yet this week, the University of Michigan released a new study showing that the leading cause of death among children in America today is now guns, firearms. Researchers found that firearm-related deaths for children increased 29% from 2019 to 2020. 
More than 4,300 children in the U.S. died from firearms in 2020, more than motor vehicle accidents. And a researcher from Michigan interviewed about the study said, the increasing rates of firearm mortality demonstrate that we continue to fail to protect our youngest population from a preventable cause of death. But will you find evangelicals yelling and screaming and raising money and protesting outside of gun stores or weapons manufacturers or the offices of gun rights politicians? No, not many. Lutheran theologian Marcia Bunge claims that our sentimentality and our outward expressions of concern for children often mask a lack of real commitment to their livelihood and well-being. Bunge goes on to say, many countries fail to meet the basic needs of children around the world who suffer hunger and poverty, abuse, neglect, and depression. In the United States alone, six million children live in poverty and nine million have no access to health insurance. Many attend inadequate and dangerous schools that lack full funding. Children are one of the last priorities in decisions on budget cuts at the state and federal level. And within our congregations, churches, we care for children and we create beneficial programs for them, and yet we still often fail in our commitment to them. Many churches consider reflection on the moral and spiritual formation of children to be beneath the work of theologians or as an area of inquiry that is only for pastoral counselors or religious educators. Consequently, you have systematic theologians and ethicists who say little about children, and there is not enough well-developed teaching on the nature of children and why or how we should care for them. Although churches have highly developed teachings on issues such as abortion and sexuality, gender and conception, contraception, we often fail to have sustained reflection on the nature of children and our obligation to them. This is where we could learn a lot from our Jewish friends, from their commitment to children's livelihood and well-being. As you heard today, immediately following the gift of the Ten Commandments, God impressed upon the people of Israel the utmost importance of teaching commandments to their children and their children's children for the sake of the life and longevity and well-being of the community. In Deuteronomy, we find the famous sacred Shema prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise up. Teaching their children to love God and love their neighbors, which comprise the two tables of the Ten Commandments, was of such critical significance to the people of Israel. They believed the very health and flourishing of their entire community depended on whether their children could remember and embody that kind of love. Whenever I hear these words in Deuteronomy, I think of that old Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young song from 1969, Teach Your Children Well. What does it mean to teach your children well? Many people do not realize that after the book of Deuteronomy was written, it went unknown and unused for centuries. In the latter part of the 7th century, a first edition was discovered in the temple and used for the reforms of King Josiah. And even more importantly, Deuteronomy was not finished as a book until the exile, which means that Deuteronomy has always been a tool for reconnecting with God, reaffirming the covenant, and rebuilding community. In Deuteronomy, Moses was trying to convince people in a position of power to modify the social configuration of their society. He called upon everyone 
to reform their lives for the purpose of animating a society with the spirit of love of God and justice for their fellow human beings, especially for children and orphans. In its final edition, Moses described his people as trailblazers engaged in the restoration of their community and exhorted them to try and shape their community in accordance with the ideals that were entrusted to them. He sought to inspire leaders to undertake the task of rebuilding a community rooted in justice and called people to join him in improving society for the sake of their children and their children's children by raising up the foundation for the next generation. I'm worried about the next generation. I'm not worried about the boomers. They've already had their time. I'm not worried about Generation X. We're in our 40s and 50s now. I'm not worried about millennials. They've proven all the critics wrong. I'm not even worried about my daughter's generation, Gen Z, because they're fierce and formidable. I'm worried about Alpha. Have you heard of this generation? The generation of children born after 2010. They came into the world in the wake of the housing crisis and a great recession. In less than 10 short years, they experienced radical economic fallout, the rise of white nationalism, the Trump presidency, and a global pandemic which radically impacted their health and education and well-being. And now, on top of all that, many adults have decided that these children do not need to understand the history of America or basic facts about science and sexuality because it might make them feel bad. A few weeks ago, one of our deacons sent me a 55-page packet of propaganda she received called the Mother Bear Manual, developed by the North Carolina Values Commission, which claims to be everything parents need to know about combating harmful curriculum in your child's classroom. The purpose of this manual is to train white suburban moms to combat indoctrination in their child's school. And the four forms of indoctrination that they identify are sex education, LGBTQ inclusion, social justice, and critical race theory. The manual states that protecting our children from harmful curriculum and indoctrination is a battle for their very hearts and minds. It says we must not only fight, we must win because their souls are at stake. And yet, as you know, hypocritically, these same parents have no problem teaching their children about the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt or the bloody plagues in Exodus or the gruesome crucifixion of Jesus. Don't those stories make children feel bad? This year alone, two million students in 86 school districts across the country have had their access to books with LGBTQ characters and people of color, or books about racism and the Holocaust restricted. In addition, at least 36 states have adopted laws that restrict teaching about racism. Just this week, the governor of Georgia signed a raft of bills overhauling public education there, which included banning books deemed to be offensive, barring classroom discussion of so-called divisive concepts pertaining to race, and establishing an oversight committee to exclude transgender children from playing high school sports. It feels like we're in 1984, but we wouldn't know because that book has also been banned. If you're old enough to learn about Jesus, you're old enough to learn about American history. Why don't we want our children to know our history? Why don't we want our children to know the truth? Could it be because we prefer to live in a fantasy world of our own creation and desperately want our children to live in that fantasy world with us? 
Have we not learned that our attempts to shelter our children from the truth not only hurt other people, but almost always backfire on us? M. Night Shyamalan's movie, The Village, offers a cautionary tale about the consequences of parents lying to their children in order to try to protect them from a dangerous world. The movie is set in an isolated 19th century farming village, but the village was founded in the 1970s, actually, by Edward Walker, a professor of American history at Penn. And he recruited people that he met at a grief counseling clinic who had lost their children to violence to join him in creating a utopia where they could protect their children from the outside world. And to keep their children from venturing out of the village, the elders created a myth, a lie, that violent creatures were living out in the surrounding woods called those we don't speak of. But the those we don't speak of were, in fact, the elders who dressed up like monsters and scared their children to prevent them from leaving the village and to protect their utopia, which turned out not to be a community at all, but a fantasy land based in lies and fear. In the end, of course, you guessed it, the children find their elders' costumes, discover their parents' lies, and leave the village forever. Why do we lie to our children? Why do we try to keep our children in a fantasy land? Why can't we tell them the truth? What are we afraid of? The real question facing us today as people here on Children's Sunday and in this season of stewardship is, how do we teach our children well? How do we raise the next generation? Where will our children learn the truth about American history, the reality of slavery, the science of sexuality, the importance of social justice? Who will help them learn how to love God and love their neighbor, as it says in Deuteronomy 6? Who will teach them how to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God? Where and how will they be formed into good people, loving people, moral people? Where will that occur? The government is not going to do it. Democrats and Republicans are not going to do it. Public school, it turns out, is not going to do it. Most private schools aren't either. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok are not going to do it. Businesses are not going to do it. And it's too much to put all of that on parents to do it alone. It takes a village. And this, this is the reason for the existence of the church, especially churches like ours, committed to teaching children the very things the North Carolina Values Commission doesn't want them to know, LGBTQ inclusivity comprehensive sex education, anti-racism, social justice. The education of our children is the responsibility of all of us, whether we have children or not. As followers of Jesus, we don't have the luxury of only prioritizing our own family's children over other children. Theologically speaking, every child is our child, which is why we must be engaged in a strenuous effort to rebuild the church to rebuild democracy, to rebuild the environment for the sake of creating a better future for our children and our children's children. We can't do that while lying to our children or trying to live in a fantasy world of our own creation. We cannot build or rebuild community with fear and lies, but we can rebuild community with love and respect and truth. And so we must love and respect our children enough to tell them the truth and give them the resources they need to help us rebuild the world. Isaiah 58 is where God promises to help rebuild the ancient ruins and to raise up the foundation of many generations if the people of God are willing to love neighbor, to seek justice for the poor and oppressed, 
Amazingly here, God's promises to help rebuild the community are conditional. It was dependent upon our response to the invitation to reaffirm our covenant vows. It's a two-way street here. And God is saying we must hold up our end of the bargain. God said if in this passage over and over again, if, if you remove the yoke of oppression from among you, if you stop pointing fingers at each other, if you stop speaking evil, if you offer your food to the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like the noonday. Then God will guide you continually and satisfy your need in parched places, making your bones strong. Then you shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters never fail. Then your ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall rise up the foundation of many generations and your community shall be renamed the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets you live in. Theologian R.L. Stoller proclaims, in the Bible, God is a child. When God became human, God became a human child. And seeing God as a child means we not only understand that children are made in the image of God, it also means we must believe that children bear the exact worth and value that adults do. In today's world that sees children as having no rights for themselves, Jesus calls us to raise up children, making the last the first. He proclaimed that children deserve the same rights and the same value as adults. So loving and empowering children are not inspirational words or a bunch of sentimentality. They are real things adults must commit to do. Children are not mere offspring of parents. They are not projects or weapons, toys or porcelain dolls. They must not just be seen but heard because they are images of God, inheritors of the kingdom, and in the Bible, capable of prophecy, leadership, teaching, and theology. If only we will give them the space and the tools they need. One thing that unites every organization on our campus, through the week school, the Cornwell Center, and the church, is our care and education of children. It is our universal campus mission and our highest calling. We have the sacred obligation to fill in the critical gaps in the education and empowerment of our children that the world cannot and will not provide. So let us on Children's Sunday commit ourselves not only to simply protect our children but to empower our children. Let us listen to them and amplify their voices. Let us work to teach them to love God and neighbor and seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly. Let us tell them the truth and engage them in the work of rebuilding the church and democracy and the world. Let us follow their lead and participate in the movements they've already created. Let us remember Isaiah's promise that when the kingdom comes, a little child shall lead them. Children are not just our future, they are our leaders right here and now. And we are called to raise up a foundation of generations. But raising up children does not just simply mean protecting them or parenting them or teaching them or guiding them. It means lifting them up as witnesses of liberation, opening ourselves to the untapped resource of their wild imaginations and empowering them to go out and lead us into the future. The health and flourishing of our entire society, just as Israel believed, all our efforts to rebuild this community the future of our church, democracy, and our world depend on whether our children receive the truth of history, 
remember the love of God and neighbor, and learn how to live this kind of love for themselves. So today, let us recommit together to raise up our children well so that they can raise us. Amen.